0: I'm I'm most riveting when I'm reading magisterial documents. I mean Okay.
1: <laughs> put some put some emotion into it. <laughs> this is God's mercy you're talking about. And welcome to this edition of Petersfield Hospital. I'm your host, Mike Lewis. I'm the managing editor of the website Where Peter Is. And today I am joined by Dan Amiri and Paul Fahey. So we're recording this episode uh, on Sunday night, Divine Mercy Sunday. Very important feast to all of us, relatively new feast in the Catholic Church. I believe it was established by John Paul II in, at the beginning of the 21st century. 20th anniversary this year. So it is the 20th anniversary of Divine Mercy Sunday, inspired by the great devotion to Divine Mercy uh, of St. Palestina. St. Paustina was the first saint canonized in the 21st century. I don't know if you guys knew that. Mercy, of course, is a huge topic that Pope Francis has has picked up on. And every year on Divine Mercy Sunday, he gives a beautiful homily. Paul, you and I were talking earlier, and this year's uh, Divine Mercy homily by Pope Francis struck you in a particular way. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that. Yeah,
0: it's, it's pretty classic. Pope Francis in a lot of ways, which means that I really loved it. He, he takes the theme of mercy, which has been a theme of his whole pontificate, but he frames it in this idea, mercy is God seeking after us. Uh, I mean, he, in the homily today, he talks about how, you know, God isn't a taskmaster who we have to settle accounts with, right? Who somehow we have to like this Jansenist God that we have to convince to, to bless us or to save us or something like that. God isn't that. Rather, he's he's the, he's the this loving father who desperately wants to save us. And this is the Pope's vision of, of what God's divine mercy means. And, and I love that quite a bit. That question of who God is, is God a loving father or is he a taskmaster? The answer to that question frames everything else. I think we see that playing out a lot in the church today, where those who don't see God as a loving father or who haven't fully believed that yet, there's tends to be more fear and anxiety or scrupulosity
1: in the way that they express their faith. You know, one thing that strikes me about uh divine mercy Sunday, which is of course a, a, a new um, beast on the calendar, but the gospel reading on divine mercy Sunday is always from John's gospel, the story of doubting Thomas. And I think it's interesting. Uh, someone's pointed out the symbolism, uh, The the classic image of of divine mercy is the symbol of the the water and and blood pouring out from Jesus's side. And St. Thomas, in that gospel passage, puts his hand in that wound in Jesus's side and declares, my Lord and my God. There's something profound in in his seeking Jesus's mercy. I don't know that it's anything more than divine coincidence that 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 reading happens to land on that particular on that particular Sunday. But so, Dan, I don't know if there's anything particular in that story that speaks to you. How does that tie into to divine mercy for
2: you? Uh, what I what I am really struck by in this pommley and something that I'm writing an article on right now is, you know, what was Thomas doing for those eight days? You know, in my in my mind, I don't know why, but Thomas was found out maybe like the next day or the day after, you know, all, all of his buddies are there telling him that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's like, no, I, I don't believe you. In fact, he says, I will not believe unless I put my hand in his side and in his hands. And so I'm kind of struck by what was Thomas doing for those eight days? You know, what was he thinking about? What plans was he making? While everyone else is hopeful and joyous, he was the one who's thinking about, okay, so now I need to go back to my old job. I need to figure out, um, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Jesus said all these things, but now I, now I don't know what to believe anymore. And so I think for these eight days, Thomas is in a crisis of faith. He's got a lot of practicalities to worry about. And then on this eighth day, Jesus breaks in into the middle of all of this worrying and anxiety. And he breaks in in his flesh and meets him and says, Thomas, put your hand here. Thomas, put your hand in my side and my hand." And I think that's just a remarkable image in my mind is that, especially in the light of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, we might be thinking about all the plans that we have to make, all the things that we're thinking about in despair almost, you know, trying to seek out some semblance of control and order in the midst of all the chaos. And we're making all these plans, but if it's not with the hope of the resurrection, those plans are for naught. And so what really struck me is that Christ in his mercy breaks into the midst of all of our anxiety and all of our pain and all of our suffering and gives us hope. And he does that. Like I said, he does that in the flesh. He does so in the most, you know, I guess you could say sacramental of ways. It's the most, he he speaks through your friends. He speaks through the church. He wants to make his presence known. And he also does
0: that in a really gentle way. Something that struck me this year with this reading is Jesus doesn't scold Thomas for his doubts, he meets Thomas, Thomas, right where he's at. Almost like the Lord shows up and is, is happy to be able to relieve Thomas's doubts in some way. There's there's this incredible gentleness in how Jesus does this. St.
1: Thomas is very interesting to, to me. Now, until this episode, there's only one other line attributed to him in all of the gospels. John chapter eleven verse 16. He's the one who said to the other disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now keep in mind that the 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 other disciples locked themselves in that room out of fear. Thomas was out. He was doing something. He was he was living his life. Despite his doubt, it seems to me that there was a clearly a courage and a conviction in his character. Yeah, he did need to, to see, to believe but there was also something about him that maybe the other disciples lacked another fun fact about about saint thomas is according to to, to tradition and i think the historical record backs this up pretty well he went and evangelized in southern india there was a jewish community there which was very is very small but even survives today and now there are a lot of christians there who go by the title, St. Thomas Christians. And there are all these legends and all these traditions about where the 12 apostles went to evangelize, to spread the gospel after Pentecost. And Thomas went further, geographically speaking, than any of the other apostles. I mean, that kind of speaks to his level of courage, his level of devotion, his almost reckless abandon. Like once he's made up his mind, once once he's convicted about something, once he sees that those wounds in Jesus's hands inside, my Lord and my God, he's all in. So I, not that Pope Francis really went into that in his homily, but the, there's something that's always struck me about the character of St. Thomas. Well, Francis did say, and that's this is another line that struck me was that he might have been
2: last in line, so to speak, to see Jesus, but he became first in love. I mean, like you said, Mike, it was almost ah uh, once he saw him in his prayer, my Lord and my God, it became almost now now Thomas is this guy who's completely
1: on fire. He's ready to go. And if only we had that fire, <laughs> I know that both of you guys have a have a very uh strong. Love and devotion to God's mercy, and one of the things that we've talked about in previous podcasts, and that all of us have written about, is that emphasis on mercy uh, that Pope Francis has brought to the Church. Not that it didn't exist before, but putting it at the forefront of his papacy. Yeah, I mean,
0: there's always there's always two movements, uh, at least when Pope Francis talks about mercy, where First, it's the mercy that God shows to us and his, the Lord's unrelenting love for us and desire to heal us and transform us. And then the second movement is then how are we going to show mercy to others? Once we've received from the Lord, how are we going to respond? And our response, the Lord always directs us to serving him by serving our neighbor. This is a mark. This is an identity of what it means to be Christian is this radical willingness to let go of my own security and my own sense of possession uh,
1: for the good of those who have less than me. So, Dan, um, you wrote this past week about universal basic income, uh, or UBI, as it's known. Um, For some of our listeners who are unaware of this as a concept, uh, maybe you could give a little rundown of, of what exactly it is and how it ties into Catholic social teaching and Catholic views of inequality. Right. So universal basic income, you know, as a
2: general definition, you could say is sort of a regular monthly payment that a person might receive from the government as just a a fact of being a citizen or a member of that community. So right now we don't really have a whole lot of examples that we can point to and say, hey, they have a UBI, but um, there has been a few, you know, Finland had a trial Uh, Italy has recently passed sort of a UBI light, which is where, you know, it's sort of a welfare replacement. Where if you're certain if you're under a certain threshold, then you do get a monthly payment. But above that, I think it either scales down or it just cuts off. So, um, there's really no like there's really nothing we can point to say that yeah, this is UBI. This is working. It's going well. Um, You have the Alaska Permanent Fund, right, which is where everyone who lives in Alaska gets sort of a a dividend payment from all the oil royalties. So that could maybe considered a UBI, but at the end of the day it's just going to say you know here here is basically the minimum that you would need to to subsist um and that's that's what that's kind of what ubi is in a nutshell now some conservatives will say hey it's just going to be a welfare replacement while some more progressive people might say this is actually a livable income for everyone and this is this is a priority so uh, as far as the catholic church goes no, we, I don't, there's no really official statement on UBI one way or the other. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about it. As I, as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of touched off a conversation by something Pope Francis said, but you know, just wage has always been a priority for the church. So um, we have this, we have a lot of these, you know, you know, constellation of issues that we're dealing with. And, you know, if you're a legal scholar in America, you might call it a penumbra of issues, right? So uh, UBI kind of lies in that penumbra of all these various teachings of the church. And what what really strikes me about UBI, at least as it might be you know we might use it in the United States, is that um, it's usually positioned in terms of how do we compensate people for all the loss of work that you know automation, technology, globalization. A lot of people are they they can no longer do the jobs that we did maybe fifty years ago because they're being done by robots and computers. And so you have a lot of these maybe lower skilled jobs that. No longer exists today, and a lot of people are out of work or they get paid much, much less than they should from a livable wage standpoint. Now, uh, it's not just an income issue; it's also just a work issue, right? So, if if someone is doing a job for a living, whatever that job is, it, it should pay a livable wage. But the guy that works at McDonald's is getting what seven fifty an hour minimum wage, uh, wherever you you know, depending on where you live, I guess eight bucks, ten bucks. That's not that's not a livable wage, and so what mcdonald's is doing is saying you know it's getting too expensive to pay the workers so we're just gonna we're gonna give you the mobile kiosk right there in the store we're just gonna have some somebody cook it in the back and that's see there's a lot of these issues i don't you can go on and on but there's a lot of these issues that uh point to the fact that people are negatively impacted by our economy all this um the trajectory of the economy over the last several decades has been towards removing people from dignified labor and That was my the focus of my ubi piece was really on focusing on how do we restore that sense of labor with dignity which we have lost now that's the goal that's sort of the ideals working with dignity but until we get there ubi is sort of that sort of stopgap, right so people can earn an income they can go to work but they can be guaranteed
1: a livable wage by their government yeah and one thing that I think a lot of people who maybe criticized your piece or or criticized the concept also aren't looking at uh, the universal aspect of the issue. Pope Francis is speaking to a global church and a global uh, a global economy where there are a lot of people living in absolutely abject poverty, subhuman living conditions compared to even what most people. In the US that we consider poor live in, the inequality in this world and the United States contributes to it is vast. And basically, what I what I hear you saying is that Pope Francis has emphasized that need um, for people to have dignified work and to be paid a living wage for it, which is which goes back to the beginning of Catholic social teaching. And there are some people who live in situations that are so dire that they can't that they can barely subsist. They -hmm. can't educate their children. They can't grow in the faith because they can't even meet basic needs. They don't have vaccinations. They don't have access to basic health care. They can't Um, rest on Sunday and worship God because they're so busy
2: working. I mean, that's that's sort of why Sunday has become so important is because i mean if if you don't even have Sunday, then what time do you have to give to the Lord now obviously you know you, you you can give your you can give your life to God, but you really need that that time set apart for God to worship to recuperate to rest, and that's that's the source of everything we do if you don't even have that then it's it's gonna be hard to be a christian and I think that it's a
1: spiritual issue as much as it is a social justice issue and it's a matter of shared responsibility i mm-hmm. think um when when we have such inequality and people are making residual incomes that would cover five or six hundred poor people, basically they're making income off their investments for doing nothing. The fact that that doesn't, quote unquote, trickle down to other people, which is something that Pope Francis has pointed out since the beginning of his papacy, is it's a true injustice. And... Even though people might say this sounds like socialism or that's communism or they need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, the odds really are weighed against them. And for some people, it's impossible to dig out of it. One of the reasons the church has opposed
0: communism and and, and socialism is because it, uh, it puts down the right to private property. But if you go back to, if you read like the, the, the compendium of, of social doctrine of the church, When it talks about the right to private property, um, it's going to reference, I believe it references, but I know the tradition goes back to Thomas Aquinas, who really formulated this right to private property. He sees it as a pragmatic right. So it's not an absolute right. um, The right to private property serves what the church calls the, the universal destination of goods, meaning that the church recognizes that private property is the best way that the human persons take the goods of the earth and develop them and make them better, like make them flourish. So the church says there's this right to private property, but because it serves the greater, which is the universal destination of goods, I don't have the right to do whatever I want with my property. I would think that a universal basic income could fit. I mean, I haven't seen anywhere the church has talked about this really specifically, but you know the church says that the church is very pro market economy but but a market economy that that's regulated by by the state that's concerned with justice and um the state has the responsibility to to regulate some of this inequality and the church usually gives general principles it doesn't usually get into the the detail of the weeds so
1: much jim anything you want to add to this discussion before we move on
2: yeah so my day job is actually, I I work in in finance, I work in investments. Um, It's, you know, not something I went to, I went to school for theology. uh, I found my way into finance and it's been definitely a learning experience trying to reconcile it too. And I see it all the time um, where you have this sort of paradigm, you know, this, this financial paradigm, this technical, technocratic paradigm, as Francis says, and every problem has an answer. And that answer is some sort of new economic solution or new product or new way to jigger with the economy and i think what this this points to is all these solutions that we might come up with are really insufficient because the the real solution is a spiritual renewal right it's raising awareness i hate that word i hate that phrase but it's it's raising the consciousness of people towards the other their responsibility toward the other their The responsibility to ensure that other people have, you know, that they they have the means to subsist, they the means to support their families. So that's where it really begins. And there's a whole variety of solutions, whether it's UVI or whether it's just philanthropy or any number of solutions. But it's clear that the problems that we see today with inequality with the poor, uh, these are issues that can only be resolved
1: through some form of spiritual renewal. Thank you, Dan and Paul, for joining me for the first part of the podcast. I'll be back in a few moments with D.W. Lafferty as we discuss the culture wars in the Catholic Church. Hello, this is Mike Lewis. You, our readers, are extremely important to us. Without your loyalty and support, Where Peter Is would never have grown into what it is today. We are very grateful to all of you who have read and shared our articles, listened to our podcast, and who have promoted our site to your friends and families. For over two years, we have responded to your support by working hard to promote the mission and vision of our Holy Father, Pope Francis. Please consider making a monthly donation to Where Peter Is through our Patreon page. Please visit wherepeteris.com for more information. Thank you very much for your generosity. God bless you. So now I'm joined by D.W. Lafferty, David Lafferty, one of our contributors at Where Peter Is. And this week he wrote a piece called The Mission Field and the Culture War. Basically, this piece addresses the new mission field, the new evangelization, our post-Christian secularized culture, and the best way to evangelize it. Obviously, this is a contrast between Pope Francis and many of his critics. He wants to engage them in a positive way and find common ground, whereas many of his critics like to emphasize the differences, the evils they promote, the sin that they don't acknowledge. Dave, what made you want to write this piece?
3: Well, part of it was that I mean I've noticed over the last few years and and I'll say it's it's particularly since the uh, Trump election or shortly before so we're talking about 2015 2016 a ramping up of culture war rhetoric that was already very heated to begin with and I'm saying this as someone who was a bit of a participant in the culture wars at one time so this, this the whole topic of the culture war is actually special to me because when I was in uh, university, when I, I completed my PhD uh, in a program, basically an English program called cultural mediations, but it was essentially you know, comparative literature, I looked at the idea of the culture war in the context of the writing of, of Wyndham Lewis, a British uh, modernist writer who was uh, sometimes considered a reactionary, but uh, I actually saw him a little differently. So I looked very deeply into this issue, looking at the the origins of the term and thinking a lot about, and, and I should say that actually the origins of the term go all the way back to Germany uh, in the 19th century and the Kulturkampf between the German government, so Bismarck uh, and Catholics in Germany and, and the Pope. And this became uh, a battle over schools, over the right of the governments to uh, interfere in the appointment of bishops and things like that. Uh, there's a whole array of, of things attached to it. Uh, it took on a new meaning later on in the 20th century. It was popularized. The term was popularized by Pat Buchanan, the uh, conserv- famous conservative still around uh, and still uh Writing and speaking, but I think I believe it was when he was running for president. He made a, uh, a famous speech in which he said that there was a, a culture war in in the United States.
1: Actually, I believe it was after his primary challenge to the first George Bush had failed, and he delivered a speech at the nineteen ninety two Republican Convention.
3: Yes, that's it. Yes, perfect. Thank you. That's um and now he wasn't the originator of the of the term but he was the one who, who popularized it and it's been used since then and i i think of culture war as a it's a schism within a society's culture when the the culture of that society has become so deeply politicized and by culture i mean everything from religion to family life, to schools, to entertainment, to every aspect of the culture has become so deeply politicized that there's essentially no way to, to reconcile, or there seems to be no way to, to reconcile the opposition. When Wyndham Lewis, the, the person I studied, uh, was writing and looking at this, this idea, he didn't call it the culture war, but it was essentially the same idea. He was looking at the, the great cultural divides that were forming in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, between uh, sort of the the left and the right, the left wing and right wing. Or um, I think uh, James uh, Davison Hunter describes culture war. I mean, he's just talking more about uh, 1980s and 90s, uh, describes it as orthodox versus progressive. There's a, there's a million ways that you can, you can describe this. But yeah, I would say it's, or sometimes you could say it's just the old versus the new. But whenever you have a divide of such intensity that Again, it seems to affect every aspect of life. There's a something that happens to us when this, this happens. It tends to, it sort of poisons our relationships, poisons our way of speaking with other people. Um, and I think we're seeing this more and more, and, and, and social media has only uh, contributed to it. And typically, when you look at it in the context of, let's say, um, conservatism versus liberalism, if we're talk- or Republican versus uh, Democrat, it's it's so extreme that basically people see each other as either you know, monsters or demons or, or idiots I mean there are some people who who literally believe that people who are opposed to them politically are are demons or demonically possessed it gets it gets very extreme but I've I've seen it it's it's always been part of Catholicism and or always been part of Catholicism in the since the 1980s and into the 90s but it's it's intensified in such a way that I feel it really threatens to deform our faith. I think it, it threatens to numb our consciences and to distract us from what's really important in in our lives as Catholics.
1: And I think this is really what you get to the core of, as well as uh, the piece that Pedro Gabriel wrote uh, the other day, is that Pope Francis's message goes beyond the culture war or transcends the culture war or rejects the culture war as a way of evangelizing the culture or as a way of being the church. And for a lot of Catholics, I think it's very apparent that a lot of Catholics see this as capitulation or, or surrender in the culture war. Now I believe to some degree I don't want to say it's a surrender, but it's a recognition that the culture war has been lost. Uh, Christendom is over, so to speak. But I think what Pope Francis is proposing is a way to continue evangelizing uh, for the church to, to continue to have a seat at the table in society and to still continue to have influence one thing that that strikes me is that a lot of so-called culture warriors and by this, I you know, you might lump in certain conservative Catholics, certain traditionalists, reactionaries believe they don't recognize that their tactics from a purely strategic standpoint have very little effect on the culture. And in fact, might be backfiring. Uh, Is this the sense that that you get? Is this something you were trying to get to when you wrote this
3: piece? Yes, I mean, that is part of it, just from a purely strategic point of view. And I know that they may not feel that that's the case because they will, you know, you will gain a certain number of adherents by being Nasty and uh, by being uh, insulting and cruel towards uh, people you disagree with, I mean, that attracts people. It's uh, unfortunately. Um, so you will get people who are attracted to that. Um, you will gain some adherence, but I think you're you're repelling uh, so many more people, and you're you're putting yourself deeper and deeper into a uh, a situation where unfortunately, the only way you can go is to get nastier and more cruel and more shrill and antagonistic. And that's what I'm I'm seeing with, you know, there were some Catholic publications that uh, I I used to actually admire because I thought that while they were sort of culture war (laughs) publications in a way, it was a more principled uh, approach to culture war. Because I'm not saying that Catholics should capitulate. I'm not saying that it means that you know, we need to give in to liberalism or give in to the culture at large and just kind of do whatever um, it demands of us. I'm not saying that at all. It's more the it's more the attitude and our our way of going about it. So the uh, yeah, what I've seen is that you know these formerly I thought reasonably principled publications and people I've seen them go further and further into this very kind of antagonistic attitude to the point where, I mean, they're basically just yelling at people. They're basically just kind of hurling insults. And I can't recognize the Catholicism in it anymore, except as um, just some kind of weapon they're trying to use to crush their opponents. And And that's, that's my biggest fear actually, is that the church and church teaching and all of Catholicism, might be used as a kind of weapon in this larger culture war to win a battle over liberalism or progressivism or whatever you want to call it. And then, in the end, it'll be thrown away because the battle will have been won. Um, that's the the real fear that I you know I think people are not actually paying respect to the totality of what the Catholic Church teaches because it doesn't teach this. It doesn't teach this kind of antagonistic uh, combat winning at all costs
1: I think to some degree though it it's a remnant of Christendom essentially that existed from three twenty a d or if you want to give it a date three thirteen and continued uh, to pretty much have a stranglehold over Western culture through you know, in certain areas through through the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, a certain if not a Catholic ethos, a, a Christian ethic, a Christian outlook on life was was in many ways looked at as the default. And I think that a lot of culture warriors today are approaching the situation from that same triumphalistic viewpoint or or from the same, they desire that same type of Christian dominance. A lot of these reactionaries are operating from this stance that Christianity should be the default culture. They engage with other Christians who maybe, who they don't see as accepting this idea. They see them as weak or capitulating. And I think that's what contributes to a lot of this, this conflict within the church. And I think Pope Francis himself, even though this has really been the direction that the church has has taken since since Vatican II at the at the latest, this idea that we recognize that the culture itself is no longer officially Christian. In many ways we live in a post-Christian West. And it's not even a matter of survival. It's not a question of survival, but if we're going to evangelize and we are going to build the Christian faith, if we are going to strengthen the church, we can't act like, for lack of a better word, rebels in society. They seem, and, and one of the other things that Pope Francis often refers to is the fundamentalists within the church. And this is something that a lot of, uh, traditionalists and reactionaries, and a lot of his opponents take great offense to the idea that they're akin to Muslim fundamentalists or something like that. But I think, and granted, there hasn't been a ton of of physical violence, if any, and and I don't I don't see very much of that. But I think the the same will, the same vindictiveness, the same combativeness, the same rebellious uh, streak, the same feelings of us versus them, the same buildup of camaraderie. i think I think a lot of that is is reflected in the fundamentalist Catholic uh, movement. And I think that it is something that is superfluous to the message of the gospel. and in a lot of ways isn't even compatible. and And in some ways, I also think that the church is has that the the church's current approach, Is a positive development that it recognizes uh, that faith is something that that people should be free to to embrace rather than something that they something that they join and fulfill out of a sense of duty or or do or are able to gain some sort of temporal prestige or status through doing. I mean, you look at priests nowadays and, and yes, clericalism is a problem. But in a lot of cultures, becoming discerning a, a vocation to the priesthood is not an invitation to to live in to live the sweet life as maybe it once was. I don't know if any of this resonates with with what you were thinking or with what you were writing. But I've obviously where Peter is, this is one of one of the outlooks in the church that we are trying to address and and trying to provide some some guidance and, and some
3: catechesis
1: and evangelization about.
3: Yeah, yeah. I um I actually that the fundamentalism that you were talking about and that, that Pope Francis has, has spoken about, I see the root of that lying in, in two things, in fear and pride. Uh, so fear, first of all, I mean I think the reaction of the church to uh, the Protestant Reformation has shaped a lot of uh, a lot of our traditions. Uh, we saw, and we saw with Protestantism, how when it started to sort of link up with liberalism and to to let these sort of Enlightenment ideas enter uh, Protestantism, then you get the. Uh, phenomenon of liberal Protestantism in the in the nineteenth century, and that ended up essentially becoming almost like the the sort of default Protestantism for a while, um, and it it led to a lot of things that you know as Catholics we we find kind of horrifying, and so we've we've had this fear that the same thing could happen to the church, and it almost it almost did a little when we there was the sort of trickling of that that liberal uh, or modern philosophy into Catholicism during the modernist controversy where you, and then you had the um, very, very harsh reaction of the church uh, clamping down on that. And again, I'm not actually criticizing that because certain measures are required for certain times and it's up to the church and the Pope to, to make those kinds of decisions. I think about, you know, what, what kind of measures are required, but then, I think the church realized eventually that this was leading to a sort of ghettoization of Catholics. And and then that led to that realization led to Second Vatican Council, where uh, you have this sort of opening up of the church to modernity and to liberalism. Uh, not a, not a capitulation, not at all a capitulation, but a gradual opening and real, a realization that there, there are some paths for dialogue for cooperation you get the work of the church with the united nations you get the influence of movements like feminism having their effect on the church and uh, the church i think has, has always responded to these kind of movements and i think that that's actually the, the church that that i love is one that can look at these things not not in a, an attitude of fear but an attitude of almost interest like what is this you know what are these strange uh, social movements that are that are going on outside the church and how can we learn from them but without compromising our fundamental principles. And that's the thing, so I'm not saying that we need to compromise, I'm not saying that we need to uh, give up any uh, aspects of church teaching. I'm saying that there are ways that we can work with the modern world, that we can work with uh, liberalism and we can learn from liberalism and it can learn from us. And I think that's a really important aspect of evangelization, actually. It's uh, dialogue, and dialogue leads to conversion. And I think that's the only way you're going to get a true conversion. And if we are talking about one day restoring Christendom, um, I think it'll be uh, probably far in the future uh, after this long process of conversion goes on uh, and and evangelization And it might involve uh, the church incorporating certain aspects of modernity. And I mean, it already has involved that to some extent, but going even further with this, I I see the church as being very radically incorporative. It's it's able, this is one of the amazing things about the Catholic church is that it's able to absorb other cultures, absorb other ways of thinking, and sort of transform them or, or transfigure them into something else. And so that's why I don't like this idea of a, a static church that just stands as this kind of like bulwark against uh, modernity. Uh, to me, that's a, a kind of dead and frozen thing. But I think the church is alive, and it, it and it uh, and there's nothing to be uh, afraid of here. I mean, and again, I'm not downplaying the issues that are, are very serious. I mean, we're dealing when we're talking about the modern world, and we're talking about liberalism. We're also talking about things like abortion and euthanasia, which are you know crucial issues and and real evils that are are in our world but we don't get rid of these things and we don't stop them by just yelling about them or uh, by portraying those who support these things as monsters or um, as being you know otherwise evil we have to learn to understand why why people uh, think these are, are are good and necessary things and then engage in dialogue to try to change their mind mind about it we can learn from them and they can learn from us and, uh, and we can only do this in a, uh, a sort of gradual way. Um, so the, and the other thing that I, I wanted to mention was the, the aspect of pride. And I think one of the things is when you, when you become Catholic, I'm talking, no, I'm talking about my own experience here because even though I was, so I'm talking about myself here mainly, even though I, I, uh, I was born in a Catholic family and baptized. I mean, I I was not really active in the faith at all uh, until it was actually my uh, uh, 30s. Um, And so I I kind of did that shift from, you know, liberalism to Catholicism that uh, a lot of converts go through or, you know, from uh, Protestantism to Catholicism. And when you become, when you enter the church like that and you become kind of illuminated by all the, you know, the wonders of, church teaching and 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 the tradition i mean you really feel that you you have a sort of privileged access to the truth to to the sort of ultimate truth and in a way you you do you do but i think at the same time we have to be humble because there, there's a real risk of this incredible pride coming out of that sort of attitude the idea that there's not even any use dialoguing with anyone that because we're simply right and they're simply wrong and that's uh, that something that can really feed into the culture war attitude. And I, I think that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see, and I think it's what Pope Francis is calling for too, is a, a humble church, uh, one that's able to engage even its enemies in a a very humble way. And I think that that's, I mean, that's, that's part of the, the Christian attitude as I see it.
1: And that seems to be one of the things that, uh, People object to about Pope Francis. You were talking about uh, dialogue with liberalism and learning from learning from the culture, learning from "quote unquote" our enemies or those who disagree with us. And having worked for the Church for a total of about ten years as a church bureaucrat, I've had a, I've had a lot of luncheons uh, with priests and and theologians just in the cafeteria and. So I can't remember where any of these anecdotes come from. But one of one of the ones that was interesting uh, that somebody told me was that every heresy in the church is a response to an abuse of the church. For example, while Martin Luther certainly is is no hero and while he certainly did make a ton of theological errors, uh, he wasn't he did have some valid points. For example, the sale of indulgences, uh, certain levels of clericalism. I know David Wannott, one of our other contributors also can also made a comment about some of the things that Martin Luther wrote about Catholic teaching and how off base they were in terms of Catholic doctrine. And he commented that if, Martin Luther really thought that the church taught these things. Priestly formation must have been terrible. And as as we know, uh, the Council of Trent developed the seminary system. And I've also heard anecdotally, uh, Vatican I was a response to the Gallicans, certainly uh, other people who had uh, criticized papal authority, the takeover of the papal states, sort of the idea that the pope was was insignificant or or trying to take away his supremacy and his primacy. and then and then that uh, council uh, acknowledged certain points uh, that were made, certain assumptions that maybe some ultramontane theologians, some false assertions that they may have made. Uh, but it also brought out the truth. And I've had, I've heard people say that Vatican II was in many ways a response to liberalism and modernism. But the fact is, the liberals and modernists did make some valid points. For example, the document on the relationship with Jews. If you look throughout history, the church treated the Jews pretty shoddily throughout the years. And and perhaps it was these ideas of, of these enlightenment ideas about religious liberty and, and freedom and the freedom to follow your conscience and, and that sort of thing that that led to this Vatican II document. Now a lot of people see this as an error and they try to hold on to the the earlier preconceptions, but if you believe in church authority at all, as we do and as We've encouraged a lot of a lot of anti Pope reactionaries to do. I think I think it's pretty clear that Vatican II definitely set the tone when it comes to dialogue with those who don't believe the exact same things that we do.
3: I think the the Church has been um, humbled many times, um, and and it's but it's always learned from that experience. Not again, not capitulating, but but learning. Um, and I mean, there is something to be learned from from all of the, the church's enemies and its its fiercest critics. Uh, some of the the the, the most vicious uh, and unforgiving critics of the church are are Catholics themselves.
1: Well, David, I think we could go on and talk about this forever, but it's time to wrap up the podcast. So I want to thank you for joining me as well as Paul Fahey and Dana Miri for joining me earlier. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.